Hello and welcome to Fair Voice. My name is Hannah Syriac and I am your host. Fair Voice is affiliated with Fair Mormon, but my opinions do not necessarily represent the opinions of Fair Mormon, the organization, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Thank you for tuning in today. Please remember that you can still get the Fair Mormon 2020 conference for $29.95. You can watch all of the conference. It happened this past week and we had a lot of really great episodes. For $29.95, you can watch them all and I think it would be a good use of your time. You could learn a lot about what's happening now. So today we are going to talk about the Clark commentary. We're going to talk about doctrine and then we're going to have a devotional. So For those of you who don't know, the Clark commentary gained traction because Joseph Smith appears to have used it when he did the Joseph Smith translation. Adam Clark wrote a biblical commentary that was pretty popular among Methodists especially, and Joseph Smith seems to have consulted it according to Wilson Lemon and Waymont. These are two, uh, one formerly BYU-affiliated undergraduate student and a current BYU professor. So just a little bit of background about what the Joseph Smith translation is before we launch into the claims and we launch into the response of the Clark commentary and my own thoughts on this. Between June 1830 and July 2nd, 1833, Joseph Smith produced what is called the Joseph Smith Translation. This is not a translation in the sense that we think of translations, and we'll talk about that more specifically when we talk about the Clark Commentary paper. This is a translation in the sense that it is a revelation from heaven to clarify parts of the Bible. So Barlow identifies five categories of changes that Joseph Smith made. The first is insertions. The second is theological corrections. The third is interpretive clarifications. The fourth is harmonization. And the fifth is grammatical changes. As a note, Semitic languages such as Biblical Hebrew and languages such as Greek often leave out the verb to be, which takes its form in is and are, that sort of deal. So some of these grammatical changes are even just for the purposes of clarifying what was happening as the KJV doesn't always include those words. Regardless, the prophet Joseph Smith did not begin his study of biblical Hebrew until 1836. Um, However, Genesis was the first book that he worked on within the Joseph Smith translation. So he did not consult, at least to our knowledge, the biblical text in Hebrew um, to do his translation. We currently call it the Joseph Smith translation. However, others have called it an inspired version and inspired commentary. So let's talk a bit about what the Clark paper says and how we can grapple with these claims. So Professor Waymont and Wilson Lemon, Haley Wilson Lemon, wrote a paper um, beginning, I believe, in 2016 or 2017. I'm not sure when the actual work began for sure, but they wrote a paper that identified around 200 to 300 parallels, depending on what you define as a parallel, between the Clark commentary, Adam Clark's commentary, and the Joseph Smith translation. These parallels range in size from one word to about five to six words, which is a significant parallel. Both Wilson Lemon and Wayman have been interviewed about this paper and have different conclusions about the significance of it according to these interviews. So some have called this practice a plagiarism and we're going to first talk about the concept of plagiarism then we'll move on to translation and then we'll move on to doctrine which will be a way for us to transition into our next segment so 
when we talk about plagiarism, we're referring to a direct copy of one text to another. And I want to talk about how modern of an invention plagiarism really truly is. When we speak about plagiarism nowadays, we have to remember that our modern context allows us to be able to type up our essays and our articles. It gives us a plethora of sources that we can use without leaving our homes, and we have the ability to make changes on demand. And that's not the case within earlier writings, obviously, because they did not have computers. Going back to ancient Rome, and definitely in ancient Greek as well, there is this concept known as the Alexandrian footnote. So David Ross, he's a famous scholar, labels the Alexandrian footnote basically as a signaling of a specific allusion by a poet through seemingly greater appeals to tradition and report, such as the story goes, they relate, or it is said. So when Heinz talks about the Alexandrian footnote, he talks about how this footnote is set up in a way that signals you that the person is using a different source and then a source is not explicitly cited but is explicitly referenced. However, expanding outside of this concept, when we talk about allusion and intertext within ancient texts going into even more modern texts, we have this idea that you don't have to necessarily quote-unquote signpost when you're referencing a different text. You can just use the words from that text, and if the person has familiarity with the text, or the person is assumed to have familiarity with the text, then they can know, okay, so this is a way of referencing me back to that text because there is an additional meaning garnered from this. And I think that this explanation can be helpful when we talk about the Joseph Smith translation. So perhaps the best way to look at it is, is as a moment of inspired commentary or intertextuality. Professor Wayman in several interviews has talked about how this can expand our our idea of prophetic authority. And I think that that's a really important part of this. Oftentimes, when we think of prophetic authority, we think of the written words of scripture. But let's remember something important about the nature of scripture. So we know that from the Bible that scripture is God-breathed, correct? And if scripture is God-breathed, that means these words of scripture come as inspiration from God. But unpacking that phrase is really important. When we talk about the inspiration of God, we have to remember that the words of the Bible underwent much transmission. So the stages of the Bible can be simplified into this, that there was a teacher who we know as particular apostles and prophets, depending on what period you're at, who taught the words or concepts of the Bible to specific groups of people. Eventually, these words were written down. They could have been written down at the same time that they were taught, or they could have been written down afterwards. Many times we believe that the author of the words in the sense of who wrote them down is not the author of the concepts, if that makes sense. So anyways, after these words were written down, then they underwent further transmission process because they were copied. And when they were copied, they were copied by various groups of people into various different languages. That's why we have the Septuagint as opposed to the Hebrew Bible. We also have the Vulgate as opposed to the Hebrew Bible and the Greek New Testament. At this point in time, we do not have unquote original manuscripts. Most of our manuscripts that we have are much later than what we thought the actual original production of the text was. So what does this say about our view of prophetic authority? I think something that I have learned for myself 
um, on an eisegetical level, but then we can get into more nitty gritty with the word translation, is this idea that authority does not come from text alone. It comes from ideas and inspiration. Um, in the same way that apostles and prophets receive revelation to tell us what we need to know, we can receive revelation to understand the concepts that they teach of. And this is how we make scripture to be a self-authenticating experience. We know that the words of the Bible, Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, and Doctrine and Covenants are true, not merely because of historical proof, not merely because of evidence, although Alma 32 evidence is super important. We know that they are true because the word, the words of the, uh, the words in them work as concepts in our lives. So in that sense, I'm not convinced that authority comes from the literal saying of words so much as I am convinced that authority comes conceptually. And when we talk about how Jesus said that he was the word, right? That was something that he says over and over and over again. He says that he's the logos. Um, we take word too literally. If we look into the actual Greek meaning of the word logos, we see that it refers to reason as well as patterns of thinking. And it, it is very much a conceptual word. It denotes a concept, not necessarily a literal word or a literal sentence. Circling back to ancient prophets and then connecting it to the Joseph Smith translation, I think when we read the Bible, we think that all of the words that they write are their own. When, and that's not true, right? We see several references in the text to other parts of the text. For example, if you pull up in Luke 1, um, let's just talk about, let's talk about Mary and Elizabeth, and then we'll circle it back to Hannah, right? So you have Mary and Elizabeth. So these women figures act as types of Hannah. Hannah as in the mother of Samuel. You can find direct language parallels. These are philological parallels. These are not cited. These are intertextual. These are intertextual with Genesis and also with, um, well, because there's, there's intertextuality with Genesis 6. With Genesis 6, specifically in Luke 2, when it's talking, uh, no, sorry, at the end of Luke 1, when it's talking about how the powers overshadow him, um, overshadow her. But then there's also intertextuality with 1 Samuel 1 and 1 Samuel 2. So what does this show us about the way that prophets compose scriptures? And I think that this is very helpful and it'll contribute to the narrative that, you know, I don't think we were really deceived. I just don't think we understood. Um, prophets then had to have composed scriptures while keeping in mind previously written things. We can see that there are direct parallels. And you might be saying, okay, well, Hannah, there's direct parallels to scriptures, but there there can't be direct parallels to other texts. Wrong you are. Um, <laughs> just joking. That was that was a joke. Um, I've, I've been told that I'm not that funny, so I'm trying to add a little bit of humor. So if we talk about the Gospel of Luke, when we talk about, um, let's go to Luke 22 for this. So if we go to Luke 22 and we look at verses, let's look at verses 45 to 46. Um, and it reads, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them exhausted from sorrow asleep. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. End quote. And so then also keep in mind that if we're looking at this in harmony, we can see in other gospels that Jesus is described as sorrowful, but not in the Gospel of Luke. So the question becomes, why is Jesus not described as sorrowful in the Gospel of Luke? And why does the sorrow go to the disciples? 
And I would argue that this is a sort of pop stoicism, to borrow a term that I learned from Mike Pope, that Luke shows an awareness that a stoic Jesus cannot experience sorrow. Um, this is not taking into account the nuances of propatheia within stoic thought, and propatheia is basically the onset of an emotion. So you begin to fear, feel sor sorrowful, and then you have the decision whether or not you continue that emotion, the, the beginning of that emotion would be called a propatheia. And those are acceptable within Stoic thought. So here we see an example of Luke demonstrating some potential awareness of Stoic texts and incorporating concepts that he has into this text. And I think that this is important because it goes outside of the realm of the biblical sphere. So clearly to me, there are other instances in Luke where he seems influenced by Stoicism and he seems influenced by Epicureanism and explicitly mentions it in Acts. So this acts as another testament that it is possible for an, a biblical author, for a scriptural author to go outside of the canon which didn't exist at this time, just to clarify, I know it didn't exist, it doesn't exist until much later, um, to go outside of the quote-unquote canon and quote or reference other texts that are not within the religious sphere. In the production of these texts that we still consider revelatory, I don't think anyone in the church disputes the revelatory nature of the Bible. I have yet to meet someone who does. If you do, email me and we can have a conversation. But I would like to merely point out that this is not something that is isolated towards the Joseph Smith translation. And the arguments typically are that he plagiarized, right? So I personally think if we take into account intertextuality within the sphere of Heinz, within the sphere of Ross, and we look at their their more conservative approach to intertextuality, you have other thinkers on this matter who definitely go a bit further um, liberal in the sense, not liberal or conservative in a political sense, but liberal in the sense that they consider more general examples of, uh, of intertextuality. So they might say that even using similar words means that it's an intertext, but that's beside the point. So basically what I was trying to say through this discussion is that I think we can consider his intertextuality not a cause for concern because of the rooting of scripture as being intertextual and his claiming that it is a translation. So let's talk about a translation because I think this is where it gets muddy. Lots of people will assume that because he said that it was a translation, that he meant it was a one-to-one -one translation. Some will claim that the church narrative reflects that. I'm not going to talk about how the church narrative may or may not have reflected that. I'm not convinced that that is productive to this conversation because I like something that Professor Wayman said in an interview about this, which is that we can see this as an expanding of prophetic authority, not a contraction of a prophetic authority. But let's talk about translation and some indications of Joseph Smith's understanding of translation. So the first place that I wanted to go with you is to the dictionary. Some have claimed that a more liberal understanding of the word translation did not exist at Joseph's time, but I wish to dispute that by looking at both the dictionary and the Doctrine and Covenants. So let's go to the dictionary. Um, we have two dictionaries that I looked at. So I looked at the Webster's 1828, which 
there was one definition that is changing to a different substance or form or appearance. And then in the Oxford English Dictionary, um, particularly if you're going to look this up, look at the 1807 reference. I think that that's the most relevant one, um, which this is the definition for you to go look at that 1807 re reference I did. Um, the expression or rendering of a thing in another medium or form. The conversion or adaptation of a thing to another system, context, or use. There have been many discussions about Joseph Smith's understanding of translation, and I'm not going to argue that he did not have a understanding of translation as a one-to-one -one traditional translation from like Greek to English or from Mayan to English or something like that. I think he certainly did have that understanding. That would be kind of disingenuous of me to suggest, but let's look at Doctrine and Covenants 20 verses 35 to 36, and then we're going to go up to DNC 128, and then we're going to go to DNC 135 verse 3. So for context, Doctrine and Covenants 20 is revelation on the church organization and government given through Joseph Smith the prophet, and this revelation we guess um, was given around 1829. Um, it's possible that it was given a little bit later than that. However, we know that it was recorded soon after April 6, 1830. So let's go and read verses 35 to 36 real quick and then have a discussion. These verses read, and we know that these things are true, and according to the revelations of John, neither adding to nor diminishing from the prophecy of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God, which come after, which shall come hereafter by the gift and power of the Holy Ghost, the voice of God, or the ministering of angels. And the Lord God has spoken it, and honor, power, and glory be rendered to his holy name, both now and forever. Amen. There's a couple of different interesting things that we could talk about. So let's talk about the phrase, the Holy Scriptures, um, well, sorry, the phrase is, the prophecies of his book, the Holy Scriptures, or the revelations of God. So there's this concept and it's known as the loaded alternative. The loaded alternative is this idea that when an author includes an or, that they are including the last the last phrase after the or as being the spicier, the more scandalous alternative. Um, that's been used to try to understand this particular revelation. I saw it on a couple blogs. I don't think that's relevant. I think a more interesting idea is the equative or, as I like to call it. So the equative or is when you use or to express a definition of a particular term. So you could say that here we have the definition of the Holy Scriptures as being revelations of God. Why does that work really well? So scriptures literally just means what is written down. That's, it comes from, it comes from the word meaning to write. It comes from scribo, which is a Latin word meaning to write. It means I write, to be specific. So it, it comes to us from Latin, but it comes from the Proto-Indo-European root scrib, which means to cut. Um, so basically, when you see the word written, think of what is cut into, right? Because they used to have to write into rocks and other harder surfaces. So they would literally scratch when they wrote into something. So writings are just scratching. It's kind of fun if you think about it, but regardless of that point. It seems to me here that a proper explanation of the or could be equative. And he's saying that holy scriptures are revelations of God. So what does that mean? It kind of dramatically reinterprets what we think of as a revelation, right? So this does not necessarily mean that it allows us to see the process of translation as different and also the process of 
writings down scriptures as differing because you can see them from a revelatory nature. This helps also with the book of Abraham and the book of Moses um, because we do believe that there was an inspired element to this translation. So when we think about the Joseph Smith translation, we could then suggest that what Joseph was doing was inspired work. And what is inspired work? Well, well we can go to Doctor and Covenants 88 for that or even 128 if we wanted to. And we could talk about how the Lord will inspire us after we have studied it out in our minds, right? Like that's the advice. That's the advice that is given to. That's given to Oliver Cowdery in Doctrine and Covenants section nine. The Lord says that after you study it in your minds, you then you come to Him with the answer. So, within the process of revelation, when we're talking about both writing scriptures and translating scriptures, it seems likely to me that you could have this concept of revelatory nature of both. And I think that this is helpful for numerous reasons. It helps us resolve a lot of the issues of that people have suggested that the clerk commentary paper brings up because it shows that there is a study element to Revelation. And this keeps consistency within LDS theology. And I think that that's a point that we can't underscore enough, that it's entirely possible that Joseph Smith used outside resources in the construction of the Joseph Smith translation, not just entirely possible, but probable, and that this is a part of the modeling of correct revelatory experiences, right? So then let's talk about the Book of Mormon real quick, because I feel like there's some import here, right? So within the Book of Mormon, we have this idea that there was ancient engravings upon plates, obviously, and we know that, um, but we also believe that there was an inspired element to the translation. And a lot of people will suggest that because not all of the translation necessarily was done in a Joseph Smith sitting down with the plates and staring at, at them sort of fashion that the translation is rendered irrelevant. But I would say that within the consistency of the Doctrine and Covenants and within the consistency of the production of scripture, there is an element of understanding scripture that is inherently relevant, uh, revelatory, and an understanding between God and the author that they will use sources when they're constructing their arguments when they're constructing their reasoning because the Lord says that in order to receive revelation, you need to study it out and you need to have awareness of what's going on. So I actually do think that if we dramatically shift our framework to what the scriptures say about how scripture is constructed, and if we look at the intertextuality that we see that there is no issue. So let's go to Doctrine and Covenants 128 verse 8, and I'll read the entire verse for you because I think it's really fascinating. But first, we got to do some context. So this is an epistle from Joseph Smith, the prophet to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and this is in 1842. And I understand that this is 12 years after the beginning of the Joseph Smith translation, but I think this sheds light on perhaps some of Joseph's ideas regarding translation. So then it reads, Now the nature of this ordinance consists in the power of the priesthood by the revelation of Jesus Christ, wherein it is granted that whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Or in other words, taking a different view of the translation, whatsoever you recognize, record on earth shall be recorded in heaven and whatsoever you do not record on earth shall not be recorded in heaven for out of the books shall your dead be judged according to their works whether they themselves have attended to the ordinances in their own propria persona etc etc so one reads this verse and the initial thought is basically that he retranslated it 
Okay, so this is important because I think this shows a goal of the JST inherently without being overt about it. So it's saying taking a different view of the translation. So basically taking the English translation of the KJB, right? Because this is obviously referring to the famous section in, I believe, Malachi. So taking a different view of that and retranslating it into a different form, but still in English. This is a huge resolution of the Joseph did not conceive of translation as anything besides a one-to-one translation issue. Because we see in evidence, of course, it is after, so we have to keep that into a, take that into account. But we see evidence that Joseph might have thought of taking a different view of translation as a process of translation, if that makes sense. I know that that is a harder argument to make, but I think it will make a lot more sense if we hop on over to DNC 135. So if we read DNC 135 verse 3, um, we this is not Joseph Smith talking. This is the announcement of his martyrdom. Um, if we read, in the short space of 20 years, he has brought forth the Book of Mormon, which he translated by the gift and power of God and has been the means of publishing it on two continents. So we have this interesting phrase by the gift and power of God. And what is the gift and power of God? Obviously, it's the Holy Spirit. So if we think about this idea of translation, it doesn't necess- it does not say that translation within this context, it does not say that, and obviously this is referring to the Book of Mormon, but it doesn't say that translation is sitting down with the plates and reading them and then translating them in that sense. It says that there's translation by the gift and power of God. Perhaps instead of asserting that we had no idea that Joseph might have involved and might have had a more inspired view of translation we just go back to this verse and we say okay we were not keeping this in mind enough when we were talking about the narrative so i think when we talk about expanding the narrative as professor women likes to say um we need to keep in mind that there are scriptures to support that and that it is very possible that we are the ones who interpreted things incorrectly so this does matter. I, I think it does matter for a lot of different reasons. I'm really into scripture historicity and scripture authority and other things like that. But I would like to talk about what George Q. Cannon said about the Joseph Smith translation. He says that Brigham Young, so Cannon reports that Brigham Young said that Joseph said that he felt like he needed to, quote, um, work on perfecting it upon points of doctrine, right? So when we talk about that, this lends itself really well, really nicely into the inspired commentary approach, because this was not meant to be a one-to-one translation, obviously. The reason why this works is because an inspired commentary would allow Joseph the opportunity to clarify the doctrine of the Book of Mormon and clarify the doctrine of the Doctrine and Covenants that he believed existed within the Bible. So, this lends itself as extremely important for discussion of Clark commentary. So Robert Boylan, in his treatment of the Clark commentary article, asserts that the vast majority of Joseph Smith's changings fall into the last three card- categories of the Barlow um, categorization of Joseph Smith's translation changes. And just for reference, these are interpretive clarifications, harmonization, and grammatical changes. So this suggests that... Specifically with reference to the Clark source, Joseph Smith did not use it for the perfecting of doctrine or these clarifications, but he used it to correct grammar, to harmonize, and to make 
things more interpretively clear. So why does this matter? This matters because this shows that as of now, we can see that the Clark differences are not a matter of doctrine, but a matter of clarification in all three instances. And therefore the doctrine is probably the inspired part. And that's the, that's the part that Joseph, sorry, that Joseph Smith told Brigham Young told George Q. Cannon, and I love how that goes. It's so fun how that goes. Um, told George Q. Cannon that he felt like he needed to work on was the doctrine part. So it's entirely possible that the doctrine part is the part that matters. So let's talk about doctrine real quick before we get into the devotional aspect of this. But I hope that was helpful for helping to understand the Clark commentary um, article. I didn't think it was that big of a deal, to be honest with you. Um, I read it and I said, okay, you know, like, totally possible to use other sources. Think of it like this. I don't know a single translator who use it, who doesn't use other sources. Um, I would not say that those translators are not inspired. I would say that those translators are intelligent. Um, Professor Wayman's translation of the New Testament stands out to me as an example of a man who was inspired. Again, he's not a prophet. He does not speak for the church, but I would say that there are inspired bits of that translation that have stood out to me, um, but that he does use a plethora of outside resources. So I think just dramatically reframing what we see to match the accordance of the scriptures with by study and by faith to understand what a translation is, is important. So let's transition into talking about doctrine. Doctrine is one of my favorite things to talk about, actually. I love talking about doctrine. Um, so let's first define what doctrine is. Let's talk about doctrine. So when we talk about doctrine, let's try to understand what the word doctrine means. So it comes directly from the Latin word doct doctrina, which comes from doctor, um, and then it comes from ina. So just a fun fact, when you see doctor, okay, so let's break this down. Tor is a word that denotes agency. So you have something like a tonsor, um, and we can talk about like the linguistic conflation of SNTs later, but you have a tonsor, which is someone who cuts hair. Um, so basically the tor or the sore um, suffix basically denotes the fact that that's that person's job. Um, so then let's talk about the doct part, the D-O-C-T. We can include the T there and that'd be fine. So this comes from the Latin word docto, which means to teach. So when we talked about doctrine, we're really just talking about teachings at its basic, basic level. So this is where this word gets tricky, okay? So... Within the Catholic sphere particularly, doctrine is a word that has a lot of meaning attached to it outside of the base meaning of teaching. So Catholics would say that doctrine is what defines the Catholic Church as the Catholic Church as opposed to other different teachings that the church has. This inherently assigns the teachings more authority. So these teachings would basically construct, I guess, the catechism of the Catholic Church is the best way to describe it. So when we talk about doctrine within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I think we have to keep in mind that there are a lot of connotations and denotations to doctrine that differ. So I'd say the denotation of doctrine is teaching, but then the connotation of it is this important way to your teaching. So let's talk about doctrine and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I understand that this is kind of a difficult subject for a lot of different people because 
there are so many arguments over what is considered doctrine and what is not considered doctrine. Um, I'm going to posit a theory um, that I've constructed scripturally, and I'll take you through the scriptures first, and then we'll build up to the theory that way. And I'm going to just suggest a few other options, but um, basically the conclusion of this, and I'm telling you the conclusion so that we can see how we reach it in the process, is that Things like history and understanding the idiosyncrasies of translation are important, but what is more central is whether or not the works teach those important things. So I'm not saying that historicity isn't important. I actually probably assign a bit more importance to historicity than most Latter-day Saints would, I would wager. Um, But what I am saying is that when we speak about Joseph Smith, we must not move the conversation so far away from the original intent of the Joseph Smith translation as to misconstrue a lot of the larger points about it, if that makes sense. So let's start by going through the words that are translated as doctrine in the KJV. Um, this is a tricky, tricky way to, is it, it's tricky to analyze the word doctrine within any scripture. But anyways, let's start with the Hebrew Bible. Um, For our purposes, just to let you know, we're not going to go through every single example. The reason being that there are, I think, um, whatever 78 plus 28 is, um, 106. There are 106 examples of doctrine within the standard works. So that's a lot to go through. Um, So within the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, we read, um, I'm going to pick two verses, and the two verses that I picked ahead of time were Job 11.4 and then Isaiah 28.9. Job 11.4 reads, For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in, thy, uh, in thine eyes. And then if we look at the context of this of this verse, um, we we see that basically Zophar, the Nahamite, uh, sorry, I pronounced that wrong, but you understand what I mean, um, is asking how can you discover God is God? And the answer is through doctrine, right? So then we go down to Isaiah 28, uh, 9, and then that reads, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from milk and drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. And I think that these are really important for understanding what doctrine is because one, it's pure and clean and it has the power to change you. And I think that that's an important aspect of doctrine um, is that there is a changing nature of it. Um, The change occurs within yourself. The doctrine doesn't change. I think doctrine stays eternal. Um, I think the best definition of doctrine for the purposes of LDS theology are is basically this idea of an eternal truth, as many have said. Um, So this shows that doctrine has the power to change and that doctrine has the power to clarify and clear up and that doctrine comes upon the understanding um, over time, not merely given to you all at once. And I think that makes sense um, just from a practical perspective. So keep that in mind. So let's go down to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, you see the word you see that you see doctrine all the time, um, and I think that there are a couple important verses that we can read. So we can go to John seven sixteen uh, sixteen to seventeen. Um, actually, let's start on fifteen. And the Jews marvelled, saying, "How knoweth this man letters, having never read?" Jesus answered them and said, "My doctrine is not my own, but his that sent me. If any man 
will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I think that this is really important because you see that doctrine does not stem from man. Doctrine it doesn't even stem from Jesus. It's, it stems from the Father. But also that in order to find out true, true doctrine, you have to be doing the will of God. So then this asks this asks the question, you know, what is the will of God? And we can we can debate that through the scriptures, but we can see that there is this concept of ordinances and covenants. And keep that in mind because that's really important. Um, so then another example of this word that I really like being used is Hebrews 6, 1 to 12. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. I think again here you see the ordinance nature and the changing nature of the doctrine of Christ, right? So basically this is saying that the doctrine of Christ enables perfection. And if the doctrine of Christ enables perfection, what does that doctrine then have to mean? I don't know. We'll keep going and keep reading a couple more scriptures before we arrive at that conclusion. So then we can go down to... One second, finding my reference. We can go down to... Matthew 15, 9. Um, and we're going to read the whole pericope, um, which starts on verse 1 and then goes down to verse 9. And I'll read it. Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But he answered and said unto them, Why do ye also transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? For God commandeth, saying, Honor thy father and thy mother, and he that curseth father or mother, let him die the death. But ye say, Whosoever shall say to his father or to his mother, It is a gift, by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, and honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Thus have ye made the commandment of God none of none effect by your tradition, ye hypocrites. Well did Esaias prophesy of you, saying, this people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for the doctrines, the commandments of men. So when we when we read this, we see that there there is this distinction again that doctrine comes from God and commandments come from the commandments that are wrong come from men that are the tradition of the elders. This is referring to the fence laws that the Pharisees constructed. So for those of you who are not familiar with fence laws, the Pharisees basically constructed laws outside of the law of Moses to enable them to better keep the law. So for example, a good example is eating flies. Okay, so you can't eat flies according to kosher law. So they would say that you have to wash your hands before you eat bread. That's it. Um, and that's an example of a fence law. So these all show, these verses that we looked at so far all show us that doctrine one comes from God and two changes you. And I think doctrine in third Nephi is incredibly interesting. Um, for the Book of Mormon, we're actually I'm gonna read th from third Nephi. Um, though I'm I do think um, some other references that I would look into. Um, I would look into um, I believe second Nephi twenty eight. Um, verses 9, 12, and 15, and I would look into Jacob 7, 2, 6. Um, but for our purposes, um, we're going to read 3 Nephi 11 and 
just a short story, you know, just to kind of break up a lot of the heavier conversation that we were having. Um, two years ago, two years ago, when I was serving as FHE co-chair in my ward, um, there was someone in my ward who was my co-chair and we started talking about studying the Book of Mormon. And he told me that studying the phrase doctrine of Christ in the Book of Mormon was one of his favorite things to do. And we read the third Nephi section so many times, and it has really transformed me in a lot of different ways. So I just want to start there, and I want to talk about what it means for doctrine in the Book of Mormon. Okay, I'm going to read 28 until 41, and I'm sorry that this is a lot of verses, but I think it's really important for you to understand, and I know I could just say read them, but several of you probably wouldn't pull out your scriptures, so... And, accord, and according as I have commanded you, thus ye shall, thus shall ye baptize, and there shall be no disp- disputations among you, as there have been hitherto, ne'er, neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have hitherto been. For verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil." who is the father of contention, and he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine to stir up the hearts of men with anger one with another, but this is my doctrine that such things shall be done away. Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. I just want to point out that in verse 30, I think you can, if you're you're being intellectually honest and you're taking this um, holistically, I think you could definitely read the ceiling ordinance into there quite easily without it being eisegesis. I think you, I shouldn't say read into, I think you can pull from there that the opposite of contending one with another is the ceiling ordinance. Anyways, behold, behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I will declare unto you my doctrine. And this is my doctrine. And it is the doctrine which the father hath given unto me. And I bear record of the father and the father beareth record of me and the Holy Ghost beareth record of the father and me. And I bear record that the father commandeth all men everywhere to repent and to believe in me. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine, and I bear record of it from the Father, and whoso believeth uh, whoso believeth in me, believeth in the Father also, and unto him will the Father bear record of me, for he will visit him with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And thus will the Father bear record of me, and the Holy Ghost will bear record of him, uh, of the Father and me. For the Father and I and the Holy Ghost are one. And again, I say unto you, ye must repent and become as a little child and be baptized in my name, or ye can in no wise receive these things. And again, I say unto you, ye must repent and be baptized in my name and become as a little child, or ye can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto you that this is my doctrine. And whoso buildeth upon my rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. And whoso shall declare more or less than this and establish it for my doctrine, the same cometh of evil and is not built upon my rock. But he builteth upon a sandy foundation and the gates of hell stand open to receive such when the floods come and the winds beat upon them. Therefore go forth unto this people and declare the words which I have spoken unto the ends of the earth. Okay, so 
There's a lot in there about baptizing and believing. So keep in mind that that's an example of an ordinance and covenants. And now let's go to doctrine and covenants. This was originally called the book of commandments. And I think that this is incredibly important to understand. So there's a lot of phrases in the doctrine and covenants that are like doctrine of repentance, um, phrases that show um, that doctrine essentially has the capacity to change you. Um, just as we saw in the other um, different spots. But I want to go down to Doctrine and Covenants 138, verse 19, which reads, And there he preached to them the everlasting gospel, the doctrine of resurrection and the redemption of mankind from the fall and from individual sins on conditions of repentance. Again, so you have conditions of repentance, but you also have salvific and exaltative language um, involved in there and I want to also go to we are heading on to doctrine and covenants 101 78 um, which reads and we're actually going to read 77 to 79 to understand a bit more According to the laws and constitutions of the people which I suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh, according to just and holy principles, that every man may act in doctrine and principle pertaining to fraternity, according to the moral agency which I have given unto them or him, that every man may be accountable for his own sins in the day of judgment. Therefore, it is not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. I think that this is incredibly important when we see the phrase, may act in doctrine according to fraternity. So when we talk about exaltation, right, there are certain conditions necessary for exaltation. We see these both in the doctrine and covenants with the marriage ordinance being an example, the marriage ordinance and covenant being an example of what is required for required for exaltation. So when we talk about abiding in doctrine, I think we have to remember that doctrine is centered around ordinances and covenants. And this provides us a great segue into our Sunday devotional. And today we're talking a bit about the sacrament. So we're going to talk about the history of the sacrament and some of the important parts of the sacrament. So if we look in the gospels, we see that the sacrament is called Eucharisto. So like This is where Catholics get the word Eucharist from. It's known as the Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. It comes from a word that means to, like, give thanks, essentially, or to wish well, to give grace well. Very interesting word. So the sacrament started off, and you can read this in Didache, as a ceremonial meal. This is what we see in Paul, too, where people come together and they break bread. But it over time had a liturgical element to it. Um, So we can see that when the Lord instituted it, it was definitely an ordinance and there was a covenant involved. He explicitly said, this is the new and everlasting covenant. That phrase should sound really familiar to you because the new and everlasting covenant is also the covenant of marriage. So when someone says a new and everlasting covenant, I've heard it say said by one of my religion professors that they just mean an ordinance and covenant. All the ordinances and covenants are connected, right? So we have this idea of the Eucharist. And one of the things that I like to think about when I partake of the sacrament is Jesus's sacrifice in a literal way. Um, I had it explained to me through a Catholic friend 
um, when I was Catholic, what transubstantiation meant. And this has heavily informed my worship. So I don't believe in transubstantiation, obviously. So let's define transubstantiation real quick. It's kind of a hard term to understand. This is the Catholic belief that basically the substance of the bread changes into the body of Christ and the substance of the wine changes into the blood of Christ. Obviously, we don't hold that belief, but we're also not quite memorialists like Zwigli and some Protestants. And memorialists basically believe that it is just a purely symbolic meal. I think us Latter-day Saints fall kind of in the middle of this where we see that there's an element of, I don't know, we see that there's an element of grace imparted to us as we partake of the sacrament. We believe that there is some sort of real change that occurs within us. And I think that this real change is a part of the ordinances and covenants that we make. So some early church fathers about the Eucharist said, um, we're going to read some Justin Martyr quotes, and then we're going to read some Ambrose and Tertullian, and then we're going to go straight into um, our sacrament prayers and have a little discussion. So Justin Martyr said, not as common bread and common drink do we receive these, but in like manner as Jesus Christ, our Savior, having been made flesh by the word of God, having both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, we have been taught that the food which is blessed by the, power, by the prayer of his word and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished is the flesh and blood of Jesus who was made flesh. And then going to Tertullian, having taken the bread and given it to disciples, he made it his own body by saying, this is my body. That is the figure of my body. Um, and I think that that's really interesting um, where he talks about how it's the figure of our body, uh, of his body. And then you go to Ambrose. And one of my favorite quotes from Ambrose is, um, why do you seek the order of nature in the body of Christ, seeing that the Lord Jesus himself was born of a virgin, not according to nature? It is the true flesh of Christ, which was crucified and buried. This is then truly the sacrament of his body. The Lord Jesus himself proclaims, this is my body. Before the blessing of the heavenly words, another nature is spoken of. After the consecration, the body is signified. So I don't agree with everything that is said in these quotes, but I like this idea of signified, right? So the the water and the bread that we partake of each week signify to us of Christ. There's a couple different suggestions that I have for when taking the sacrament. The number one suggestion that I have is sleep beforehand. So <laughs> make sure that you get a full night of sleep beforehand because I feel like when we talk about the sacredness of the ordinance, the sacrament is the most important ordinance, um, at least in, in terms of signifying to Jesus Christ that our relationship with him is strong. Elder Holland in a short message called, I believe, Understanding the Savior, I'm not 100% sure if I'm wrong, someone tell me, it's fine, um, said that the most dramatic way that we can show weekly that we do always remember him is by partaking of the sacrament. And I think that that's really true. And one of the ways that we can more fully partake of the sacrament is we can be more prepared to do so. I think that's the number one thing that we can do is make sure that we are entirely prepared to partake of the sacrament. Um, another suggestion that I have is to make sure that we review the words of the sacrament prayers so that we can understand what it is that we are covenanting to do and what it is, what, what our covenants are. Um, so something that I like to do before partaking the sacrament each week is to take a bit of an inventory, right? So I've been endowed, so I've received that, that 
ordinancing covenant. I haven't been married, so I haven't received the sealing ordinancing covenant, but I've been in doubt. So I like to review my specific covenants and see how I have lived up or have not lived up to them. Find specific ways that I can improve, but also find specific ways in which I did well. I think both are important because they enable me to see both my progress and also what is hindering the rest of my progress. But if we turn to the sacrament prayer, so these are found in Doctrine and Covenants 2077 and 2079. I'm going to read them first and we'll have a short discussion and I'll give two more suggestions. So we read, O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this bread to the souls of all those who partake of it, that they may eat in remembrance of the body of thy Son and witness unto thee, O God, the eternal Father, that they are willing to take upon them the name of thy Son and always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given them, that, may, that they may always have the Spirit to be with them. Um, I like this because we are covenanting that we will be willing to take upon ourselves the name of thy son. I think this is an incredibly important point to, to make, that we are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ, because there will be times in our lives where we sin, where we fall short of the glory of God, where we are not able to take upon him, to take upon us his name perfectly. So the fact that we are willing to do that and witness that, that's all I think our Savior asks of us at this particular time. We are commanded to be therefore perfect. Of course, we have to strive for, 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 for perfection, but the person who makes us perfect is Christ. So then we also say that we will always remember him and that we will keep his commandments. These are two things that we also promise. Let's go to the prayer on the water. O God, the eternal Father, we ask thee in the name of thy Son, Jesus Christ, to bless and sanctify this water to the souls of all those who drink of it, that they may do it in remembrance of the blood of thy Son, which was shed for them, that they may witness unto thee, O God, the eternal Father, that they do always remember him, that they may have his Spirit to be with them. I like this too, because so we're bo in both prayers, we're promised to have the Spirit with us. And I think that that's one of the most miraculous promises that we can receive is that we'll have the Lord's Spirit with us to lead and guide us and to clarify truth and error unto our souls. But I also think it's incredibly important that we, when partaking of the water, are witnessing to God that we always remember him. And that's where I think Elder Holland, not to speak for Elder Holland, that's where I'm just guessing that Elder Holland gets at least part of his insight about how the sacrament is the most dramatic way weekly that we can show the Savior that we do always remember him. It's the preparation that it takes to show up, but also the fact that when we partake of the sacrament, we are saying to God that we want to be here, that we understand that we are here for a reason. So those are a couple initial thoughts I have about the sacrament. A couple other suggestions that I have is um, something that I like to do is I like to picture the Last Supper and read the Passion Narrative before I partake of the sacrament. I think that that's super helpful too because I think we can often feel quite removed from Jesus Christ's time, but if we, were, if we remember that his sacrifice for us was real and that he was with apostles one night and he broke that bread and he gave out that wine and they did not know whether or not they were going to betray them betray him. Um, Judas probably knew, but the rest of them had no idea. Um, I think that that's really an important part of this. And I, I like what Elder Uchtdorf says about Lord is it I. I think something that we can ask when we take the sacrament every week as we remember that passion narrative is we can ask the Lord, like, Lord is it I. 
am I doing something that is betraying you or am I on a path that I need to correct? This sacrament is a very good way to have a weekly inventory of our spiritual progress. Another suggestion that I have is a visualization suggestion. So uh, what I like to do is I write down, this doesn't work for everyone. For some, it might make them feel too shamed. I don't know. Um, I like to write down all of the things that I think were significant sins in my life in a week. Um, all of my significant transgressions and my griefs, pains, and afflictions. I write them down in a list. And then during the sacrament, I picture myself giving them over to Jesus quite literally like taking taking a word in a bubble and handing it to him and having him consecrate my shortcomings so that way I can improve dramatically throughout the week through Jesus Christ's atonement. I think that that's really important and it's been a good way for me to have more specific repentance in my life. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to partake of the sacrament and have my Sabbath day, as it says, I believe in Exodus, and as President Nelson said in a talk, be a sign between me and the Lord about how I feel about him. And I invite you to increase your Sabbath day worship by partaking of the sacrament with more vigor, with more energy, with a greater love of God, with a greater understanding of Christ's atonement, and with a greater desire to get do good. So this coming week, we have a really great interview coming up with Christopher Blythe about the book, The Terrible Revolution. After that, we're talking to Robert Boylan about Mariology. Should be a fantastic time. I'm really looking forward to it, and thank you for listening to Fair Voice. It's always great to have you guys listen to me, to have you guys send in questions and emails. As a reminder, you can always email me at h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. That's h-s-e-a-r-i-a-c at fairmormon.org. If I do not respond to your email within a couple days, just nudge me. I get a lot of emails um, for various different things, so it's easy for them to slip through the cracks. I want to be able to respond to you. I want to hear what you have to say, so feel free to email me. And thanks again for listening to Fair Voice.